Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. You know, I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis and they have a look back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Peter Horst. He's a recent author of Marketing in the Fake News Era, subtitled New Rules for a New Reality of Tribalism, Activism, and Loss of Trust. Peter's been on the show before. I think it's episode 25. I encourage you to check that out. He is a former CMO with 28 years of leadership experience across brands such as Hershey, Capital One, General Mills, U.S. West, or Quest, as it is known today, as well as Ameritrade. Today's topic takes on this issue of purpose, issues, and taking a stand in a very polarizing world today as a brand leader. And we kind of break it down in terms of what he's found going through the process of writing this book about how we should even think about managing through this time that we're in today. So I hope you enjoy this show with Peter Horst. Peter, welcome back to Marketing Today. Thanks so much. It's great to be back with you. Well, and for listeners out there, Peter was on episode 25, and I encourage you to go back and listen to that episode as well. Besides writing a book, which we'll get to in a moment, what have you been up to? Well, I've been up to what I've been calling Career 2.0. After 30 years of corporate-side marketing, and everything from telecom to chocolate bars to checking accounts to cybersecurity, I made a fairly big shift, you know, getting close to two years ago. And I've been doing a mix of writing. I'm a Forbes contributor, just published a book, doing some consulting, doing some board advisory work, doing some speaking. So it's been a real change of pace from you know the usual corporate gig and uh, a chance to dive into interesting issues and 
talk to interesting people like you. So it's been uh, kind of a, a real fun and very different shift for me. Very nice. Very nice. Well, congrats on publishing Marketing in the Fake News Era. Thank you. Why write a book and, and why now? Well, I've always enjoyed writing. You know, my first job, even while I was in college, was as a, believe it or not, medical news radio reporter. I did a tour of duty as a magazine editor before going back to business school. I've enjoyed writing, you know, really throughout my career. So the notion of doing something longer form and getting into doing some more writing was always something that was sort of rattling around in the back of my mind. But then, of course, you know, embarking on this career 2.0 where you're setting yourself up to be thought leader, influencer of sorts, it's sort of helpful to be author of dot, dot, dot. And it just felt like an appropriate part of this next step to have sort of planted my flag with one hunk of of thinking and have that be a cornerstone. And as I say, it was something that was uh, always a bit of an objective. So it was nice to be able to get the chance to do that. Well, it's an important topic that you're you're highlighting with the book. I was recently at a, a dinner with other marketing executives. And in particular, there was this one person who I will continue to keep their anonymity, <laughs> but from a CPG brand, really wanting to try to maintain their cultural relevance. And it's a brand that if people knew who it was, they've done some really great work in that area, taking stands on different issues and things like that. But I think they're like many brand owners or leaders today, a little gun shy in the current landscape. So I wondered how you thought about the current landscape. It seems so polarizing right now. Well, it's interesting that you say that. This topic for the book came out of a speech I gave about a year and a half ago. And as I was gathering perspectives, talking to different CMOs for the topic, a number of them said, this is a really interesting topic. It's really important. I can't wait to hear what you hear from others. Just don't mention my name. Don't bring me into this. (laughs) So it is a topic that's fraught with concern, whether it's, I don't want to get on the president's radar screen and end up in one of his tweets, or I'm afraid of stepping on a landmine if I engage in the wrong issue or engage in the right issue the wrong way, or if I don't engage in an issue that people expect me to. So it is fraught with tension, fraught with with peril and concern. And it was sort of that aha that said, wow, everybody's worried about it, but everyone's afraid and not talking about it. It led me to write the book. And I think this atmosphere is really the result of kind of a perfect storm of a bunch of forces that are creating a really challenging environment for brands. And you mentioned polarization, right? The country Mm -hmm. is deeply polarized across any number of spectrums, whether it's political, socioeconomic, urban, rural, conservative, liberal, the middle has just fallen away. And along with that, there's been this loss of trust you know, massive drop in trust in every public institution from government to media to business to even NGOs, along with a rise in fear. People are feeling the system is broken. It's not working for me. I'm worried about my livelihood. I'm worried about North Korea blowing us up. So you've got this really sort of churning, high emotion atmosphere. And then you layer on a new expectation that consumers have of brands to get engaged and be part of the solution. So they're looking around, they're saying, the world's busted. I don't believe government's going to ever get around to fixing it. So, okay, corporate America, step up, step in, make things better, play a role that you haven't typically played. So on the one hand, that's a great opportunity for brands to make a difference in the world and to actually engage with customers in a deeper, more resonant way. But with that opportunity comes greater risk, 
that we touched on earlier. You can step into an issue and alienate people who don't agree with you, or you can make an attempt to step into an issue in a positive way and get it completely wrong. And you know, probably the poster child for that is the Pepsi Kendall Jenner ad, where right. she stopped a riot with a can of soda. So you've got these sort of high stakes, you've got these expectations, and you've got consumers who are highly energized, more politically active than ever. Right? There are more people than ever who are engaging in activist activities, protests of one kind or another. Social media makes it really easy. Delete that app, hashtag boycott that brand. So, you know, brands are now sort of in the crosshairs in a way that they really never have been before. Well, the way, you know, in the book, you talk a lot about, you know, it taking this stand is almost, let's say, maybe the last step you do. And you really talk about trying to understand your core brand positioning first, I believe. Tell us more about that. Like, I think I, I agree. You know, you can't, before you take a stand, you need to make sure, I think you use the phrase, you know, walk the walk. Right, right. Yeah, this is one where, you know, wherever and however a brand decides to step into an issue of some social or political significance, it's really important that they do it in a way where there's a real authentic connection to the brand, to the issue, and that it's not in any way perceived as jumping on a bandwagon or reading the newspaper or the trends to say, hey, here's a hot issue, let's wade in. So as opposed to doing what we typically are trained to do as marketers, which is read the marketplace. This is where you really want to start by looking internally with a really introspective process to say, what are our core values? What is it about our motivations, our reason for doing what we do that that drives us? What are those issues that we would take a stand for, whether or not we plan to proactively lean in and make statements or be a little bit more recessive? But if called out, what would we stand up for? And that can be Anything related to, you know, if there's a founder, what the leaders sort of, what fire they have in their belly, the associates, customers, you know, whatever those meaningful issues are, start with that and connect it to, you know, yes, what is the brand about? Because if there's, you know, an important issue out there that society cares about, but it has nothing to do with your brand and its purpose and its positioning, then that's valuable kind of more classic CSR stuff, but it's really not what we're talking about. It's sort of finding that integration of what is meaningful and true about the brand, what is important to society. And then very critically, you have to layer in, where do you have permission to go? Because there are some issues where your voice may just not be welcome. You may not be seen as having the credibility, the bona fides, so to speak, to weigh into this. So that's a very important third consideration before you start engaging in any of these issues so that it really flows very organically and authentically from the brand, the values, and the positioning. Right. You talked about, you know, really trying to understand your core fundamentals, right? Whether it comes from a founder, your customers, your employee base. I think that's a great place to start. Are there any tips or suggestions you'd give marketers as they start to to ask these questions of themselves or start down this path of figuring it out? Sure. You know, if there's a founder still there, talk to them. What was that spark that, that got them going? If not, take yourself back to the origins of the company. What was the motivation? What was the passion that drove it? The uh, P.O. Shunker of Samsung tells a great story about after the disaster of the you know exploding cell phones, they had to really rebuild the brand. And he dug way back to the founding of the company by talking to company veterans and this notion of doing the impossible 
was sort of a central part of, of what that company was founded on. So it can be about origins, you know, talk to leaders, talk to associates, look at the nature of your business, right? If you're a chocolate company and you have uh, cocoa beans coming from you know, farms in Africa, the issue of child labor might be something that you want to be conscious of or at the very least prepared to deal with because it's connected to your supply chain and your business and where people might either come at you or expect you to weigh in. You know, look around the people, the constituents, the nature of your business, and the nature of your customers. You know, Planned Parenthood, they talk about, they were looking at their constituents, their customers, so to speak. One of their core issues was lack of affordable transportation. You know, getting to work and yes, getting to appointments with Planned Parenthood. So the issue of affordable transportation became something central to that brand sort of mission and cause. So all of those can be good sources to kind of root around in. And, you know, once you've, you've sort of started to gather that, then go through, you know, a vetting process internally again. Is this, do you have everybody on board, your leadership, your board, your, your customers? Because you don't want people pointing fingers if at some point you get into hot water. You want everybody aligned and supportive and in the same foxhole with you if the going gets tough. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good point. It's a great point. And there's this graph in your book, which I think is brilliant, by the way. It, <laughs> well, thank you. It's very simple, but at the same time, I love how you, you got this diagram of everything from your head in the sand to, you know, understanding your values, your purpose, how that builds to the issues that are potentially important that you could engage on. And then ultimately, the last thing on the list, it seems in this chart, is taking a position. I wondered if you could just describe that journey a bit. I mean, we've been talking around it, but you know, if you think about, and for those that are um, listening to this and not looking at a chart, you've got your y-axis is the risk of negative reaction, and then the x-axis, if you will, across the bottom is relevance to consumer concerns. And head in the sand is off the chart. <laughs> and then it starts with values, purpose, issues, and position kind of going to your upper right. So yeah, I wondered if you could talk to me. Yeah, sure. This is a framework that I came up with because as I was talking to you know, marketers, insights people, various you know, folks who have a, a stake in this issue, I kept coming across this perspective that created a false dichotomy or a false choice between either I go all the way out to an extreme polarized political position and or I do absolutely nothing. So people would say, hey, I've got a big brand. I can't go on TV and say Trump's an idiot or <laughs> I'm against you know, immigration reform. I'll alienate and enrage half the country. So therefore, I must sit with my fingers in my ears and do nothing and just hope this all goes away. And that was the perceived set of alternatives. So I developed this notion of this risk-relevance curve, so to speak, to articulate a more nuanced, graduated set of postures a brand or a company could take that don't represent just those two wild extremes. And, you know, while I would never say there's one answer for everyone, because companies do have different sensitivities and some can be more bold based on their ownership, their leadership, their customer base. Some need to be a little bit more conservative. But the one thing I would say is that everybody should, at the very least, ground themselves in what I call the first level of value, where you may say, I don't want to engage in the public debate. I don't want to espouse my beliefs, my purpose, my values publicly, but I will go through that process we described before of saying, 
what is important to me and what would I stand up for if that moment came? Because you just don't know, right? You don't necessarily control whether or not you get dragged into the spotlight. And you look at the NFL, when the kneeling phenomenon occurred, they had no response. They had no perspective. There was no collective point of view or set of values that drove them to say, we see this thing happening and here's what we will do or not do. Here's what we will say based on these values that we have already made clear to ourselves. So they went 18 months with no answer and Trump took over the narrative and called them weak and rudderless and the players disrespectful. So, you know, that was because they had not, it seems, gone through that process. So every company, regardless of how aggressive or not you want to be, should go through that, assuming that they would get pulled into the spotlight. That's what I call value. One click up from that, where you're a little bit more forward-leaning in terms of, you know, being public with a sense of purpose, but not, you know, not as aggressive as some, is, is brand purpose. And that's sort of something we're all very familiar with now. It's become all the rage. Many brands have jumped on that. And that tends to be a pretty evergreen, positive, and not very polarizing idea. Something mm-hmm. that is it tends to be pretty uncontroversial. So right. Dove is, is going to poster child for this with championing real beauty. Now, it's unlikely that you're going to get the villagers storming the castle with pitchforks and torches saying, down with real beauty. We want fake beauty. We want fake beauty. You know, confidence in young girls. It's a wonderful thing. Great program. But who's going to take always to task for championing that under the banner of we want timid, nervous, unconfident girls? So that's sort of purpose. One click up from that, and the space that I think is really interesting, goes a little bit further than sort of the broad, evergreen, uncontroversial purpose and goes into what I call issues that are more, a little more timely, perhaps a little more fraught with tension, not all the way to polarizing, but still meaningful current issues. And this would be, for example, Heineken taking on the issue of how we just don't have civil dialogue across these polarized perspectives anymore, or Frito-Lay wading into the issue of young people not registering to vote to the yeah. degree we'd like them to, or taking on the issue of suicide in LGBTQ teens. So a little bit more potential for some blowback. But again, not all the way to I'm for or against, you know, yes or no kinds of issues. And then, of course, you know, the most extreme place that has the greatest likelihood that people will say, man, I love you. I so agree with you. Or I hate you and I'm deleting your app is what I call position where you are saying I am for same-sex marriage. I'm against Trump's immigration policy. I am on one side or another. And that, again, you have the most risk and the most possible return. And some companies choose to go there proactively, and, and it's not only edgy millennial brands that do that. Right? The IBM marching up and down the halls of Congress with Dreamers in tow, supporting DACA because they uh, employ a bunch of Dreamers and they need to hire second talent from around the world. That was a vital business issue for them, even though it was pretty politically touchy. Some companies don't start there. You, know, you look at Patagonia, which you would say was pretty grounded in purpose and championing the great outdoors, very uncontroversial. Well, the day Trump signs an executive order abolishing millions of acres of parkland, suddenly they leap from purpose all the way to position to say, all right, we're suing the president. The president's robbing you. You know, we're now in a pitched political battle with the president of the United States. So it, it, circumstances can also drive where you land and which area you move to. The one thing I say nobody should do, you referenced earlier, which is what I call head and sand, and that's the NFL. That's the, I'm not even going to go through the process of being ready, so therefore I'm caught flat-footed and unprepared if events sort of go that way. Right. 
Well, you know, as well as I do, there's a lot of critics out in the world. And some of these people have been podcast guests before, like a Mark Ritson. I know you mm -hmm. highlight in your book. Yeah. Or even I think Byron Sharp would probably agree on the anti-purpose front language. Right, right, right. <laughs> but there's equally, there's folks like yourself that are advocating at least figuring out where you stand in the world. And then maybe that evolves to a purpose position or an issues that you're tackling or a position in the, in the marketplace. You've been in the C-suite. How would you counsel a CEO or a CMO knowing those voices are on both sides of the equation? Yeah. Well, you know, I devote a whole chapter in the book to saying, okay, let's walk through all the arguments against even thinking about doing something like this. And there are plenty of good ones. And it's important to think through them because you're likely to hear those arguments and those challenges. So one perfectly reasonable perspective on why not to do any of this is, hey, we're not in the business of selling purpose. We sell beer, we sell candy, we sell cars. So why on earth would we be taking on world hunger or voting or civil dialogue? And Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There is validity to that, and it's a good sort of balance because we've certainly seen plenty of examples of purpose, becoming an end unto itself that, that loses any sight of brand benefit and any synergy with the business. And that goes back to, you know, what we talked about earlier, you know, making sure there's an appropriate overlap so that you are building relevant equity and value for the brand by whatever you're doing. And it's not simply just in the category of CSR goodness. So I think that's a good discipline. But interestingly, Larry Fink, who runs BlackRock, the $6 trillion investment company, wrote a letter to hundreds of CEOs around the world in January saying, hey, guess what, guys? Profit isn't enough anymore. Government has abdicated leadership. You've got to step up. So even Wall Street is saying, if you don't have some sort of higher purpose as a part of your daily mission, you probably aren't sustainable. So I think it's a question about balance. It's a question about making sure there is that synergy and overlap and that you're not just sort of doing feel-good purpose ads that actually don't move the business forward at all. So I think in terms of just, you know, what's the advice, it's make sure you understand your constituents. And it might be that your CEO, your board, your owners have absolutely no interest in it, no, no passion, and don't want to take any risks involved with any sort of coordinating posture. So there I would say, fine. But again, you may not control whether or not you are you know, called out in social media or by CNN or by the president or an unfortunate incident with a store manager in Philadelphia on some Friday. So go through that values process so that you're ready. 
But I also say, challenge yourself, challenge the people around you. I remember a crusty old advertising mentor I had decades ago who said, you know, kid, if you're not making someone in the C-suite nervous with your advertising, you're probably not doing your job. So, you know, push the comfort zone just a little bit, at least in terms of the dialogue and the exploration and the thinking. And if at the end of the day, grounding in values is all you do, then great. You've created a moral compass for the company. You're prepared to deal with what comes and you've done good work. I think you additionally, you know, you go on this journey, right, of identifying your, your the values of the company, maybe the purpose in which your company is going to take to heart. And I believe you highlight this in the book as well, that then the real work starts, right? Because your internal organizations, depending on how big the organization is, you've got all people of all flavors, right? And some may agree with values and some may be on the on the edges of those values. How do you think about I guess first, do you agree that like there's probably as much internal work that needs to be done as there is communicating what you stand for? And then two, is there a way to think about the internal work that needs to be done with the internal stakeholders? Yeah, the internal work is critical for a whole bunch of reasons. It's critical in terms of getting the answer right to begin with. You want to make sure that what you're doing does actually reflect the values of the company and does connect in a resonant way and, and does provide sort of a moral compass and a North Star and some gravitational pull that makes people you know, feel good about coming to work. I and mean, that's a big part of what this provides is, is more and more, and it's not just starry-eyed millennials, people want to feel as though they're connected to an organization and a group of people and an organizational mission that is bigger than just selling sugar water. So it's important to do that internal listening and vetting and iterating to get it right. Having done that, it's incredibly critical to make sure everybody knows it, understands it, understands how it applies to their daily work. Because if it's just a laminated document that HR hands out when you go through orientation, it's not going to have the sort of the teeth and it's not going to have the impact that it should. And you know, you look at that that dreadful incident with United Airlines of dragging the bloodied unconscious you know, doctor off the plane. It's hard to imagine that happening at JetBlue just because there was such a culture of you know, humanizing air travel and customer bill of rights. Regardless of the operational pressure in the moment to get a plane out of the gate, it's hard to picture that culture allowing someone to summon the cops to physically drag someone off the plane. So getting that instilled and a part of the daily dialogue and decision-making and having employees see management making decisions on the basis of those values, ideally at some cost, is critical. So yes, I agree that internal work is critical and, and you know, going through that vetting and going through that education and the reinforcing. And, and again, it's not just the handing out the materials, but people need to see those values in action. People need to hear them being used as litmus tests for decisions. They need to hear questions being asked about whether people are living up to those values and celebrating instances where they do in order to make it real. Good. I love that example of JetBlue because I, I 100% agree. It's just ingrained in their DNA of who they are. And that doesn't happen by accident. No, exactly. Exactly. So let's fast forward. Let's say we're riding up your curve and you know we're ready to go public and take a position in the market. What would you say we need to be prepared for, be ready for before we go public? Well, you know, assuming you've done good work in identifying, distilling, grounding your values, there are just a lot of things you need to be thoughtful about as you get into execution. And you know, having chosen your issues wisely, and we talked about you know how to do that by 
that overlay of what's true about the brand, true about society and where you have credibility, you can still stub your toe executionally, whether it's a turn of a phrase or an image that you just didn't quite realize either, you know, demonstrated a lack of understanding of the issues or inadvertently, you know, tripped a trigger. So it's really critical to have the right people at the table, the right eyes on the work. And this goes back to the generally critical principle of having a diverse workforce so that you lessen the likelihood that, that you will through just sort of some kind of inadvertent, well-intentioned tone deafness step in a pile of it. Now, that said, there are just too many issues and sensitivities and constituencies to ever hope that every brand team, every digital, every social team everywhere can represent that full spectrum. So based on the kinds of issues and values you're engaging in, reach out and develop relationships, bring people into your tent, whether it be opinion leaders, influencers of various kinds, thought leaders, interest groups who can both make sure you're on the right track, who can be some of those eyes on your work to make sure you're adding value and not creating risk, but who can also stand up for you because even the most well-intentioned can go wrong. And it's critical that those people then be in a position to say, hey, I can vouch for these guys. I know it's in their hearts. I've spent time with them. This is an unfortunate misstep. The social media team in Germany put out a video that, yes, certainly doesn't look good when look at it in a certain light, but that's not an indication of who they are. You need those people, you're talking heads, so to speak, from the political analogy, who can come out and say, no, these are good people. So you have to surround yourself both internally and externally with the people who can help you be as value-added as possible on the issue and do the best job you can of avoiding the sort of tripwire. Well, do you think the world's going to stay like this? It seems like 2016 presidential election was a milestone for this new reality. And I'm sure it was under a foot before that, not to give Trump too much credit. But what do you see going forward with both the midterm elections? But is this a new reality to, to stay, do you think? Well, I devote a whole chapter in the book to that. And I talked to I don't know, a dozen or so people from CMOs to PR experts to academics to ask them that very question. You know, is this new normal or is this just a product of this unique time and we can hope that we'll go back to something that feels a little bit more like the way things used to be? And, you know, they all had their own perspectives, but every one of them essentially came down on the side of get used to it. This is the new normal. We're not going back, at least anytime soon. But that the issues of divisiveness, polarization, of tension, of sort of uncivil high-volume strife are just not going away. And therefore, the, the sort of the perils and opportunities for brands will remain as we're seeing them today. You know, at least for the career span of most of the people listening to this, it's fair to assume that we are, we're going to be living with this for a while. And a lot of that is, you know, one title I'd, I'd been pondering for the book was Marketing in the Trump Era. But the more I dug into it, you know, Trump is really a symptom and an outcome of this. He certainly embodies a lot of you know, what we're talking about and certainly adds some fuel to the fire of some of these highly charged issues, whether you love him or hate him. But the trends that gave rise that, that we're dealing with right now preceded him and will be with us you know, after he's gone, whenever that is. So there's really no reason to think that this is going to be going back to some kinder, gentler, cozier environment anytime soon. 
Right. Well, and it it also seems like it's not just a U.S. phenomenon. If you you know add Brexit to the equation, oh, sure. as well. yeah. Right? No, we see the same things all around the world. Yeah. Well, what concerns you most about the future? Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will not take a page from my book, and I'll, I'll avoid anything that is a polarized sort of comment. But <laughs> you know, one worry is polarization that we're seeing. I just it feels as though we're in this giant centrifuge, yeah. and whatever issue you might look at, we're getting more and more extreme, more and more divided, and less and less able to collaboratively find creative solutions, right? I mean, I always believe the most creative outcome comes from a seeming contradiction. You know, it's true in marketing. Great taste, less filling, right? What? How can that be? Wow, this magical beer. It's great taste, great. And so the, the utter lack of and in fact, the denigration of anything that looks like collaboration and compromise and meeting in the middle just feels like it, it does not bode well. And then it just suggests we were going to be lurching from one side of an extreme to another every time an election tips and people get set up for the status quo and we just go heaving from one extreme to another. I worry, too, just about this phenomenon of fake news, which is you know more than just simply fake news, but it's just a world where nobody knows or seems to know or claims to know what's true and anything can be said and it's hard to know the source of what we consume and most people don't take the time to understand the provenance of what they're absorbing so it feels as though in a world where there's tough issues to solve in many different perspectives you'd hope that the salvation is some bedrock of fact and truth and reality that we can all stare at and say okay yes we agree the world is round Therefore, what are we going to do about this thing called gravity? But when you lose that, then how do you get out of the mess that we're in? So those are probably two of the major foundational worries that I've got that I don't see any uh, near-term solutions to. Yeah, no, I I agree. Both of those are are big concerns. Well, let's twist to a positive note. Okay. (laughs) If you were working on a brand today or brand side today, are there categories or industries that you think of might have untapped potential to understand their tribe, to use your word, and put their values on display. Don't know if anything comes to mind. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think, I don't know if it varies so much by industry. Now, there are some industries that, by the nature of the transaction and the relationship, are closer to their consumers, to their tribe. And interestingly, you know, some of those are, for example, the financial more of the hospitality companies who have that sort of one-on-one, which then leads to more data gathering, which leads to a more ready insight into who are these people and what makes them tick versus, say, a CPG or any company that works, sells through a third party. You don't have that same kind of direct relationship with the consumer, so you have to work a little harder to get that. But I think really less than industry, it's more mindset. And, you know, even in a world where we have so much data at our disposal, it it may not necessarily be the kind of data that really gives you that rich insight you need to engage in the kind of issues and dialogues that we've been talking about. You may know a ton about their consumption of airline travel or chocolate bars or beer, but none of that may tell you anything about the issues that worry them, their concerns about the world. Are they politically active or not? You know, and that's the kind of stuff we're talking about. So I think in this world of algorithms and data and analytics, more and more brand managers need to bring kind of a liberal arts mindset 
to say, great, if I really want to engage in a more holistic way, I've got to understand outside of my category, whatever that is, and you know, walk in their shoes in a very different way, in a much more immersive kind of way, so I kind of understand their worldview and then can present my brand in ways that perhaps come through different emotional doors in ways that are kind of more deeply relevant. So I suspect it's less an industry and more a mindset that pretty much any industry needs to adopt. And particularly those that are heavily into the data analytics might need to very deliberately keep in mind that more liberal arts perspective. That's great advice. Great advice. Well, last question for you. Last time you were on the podcast, we went through a number of the things about you personally, you know, what drives you and, and those types of questions. But as I was looking back, there's a question I, I didn't have at that point in time that I'd love to ask you now, just to kind of get to know you a little bit more behind the scenes. The question is, just to get it out there, is, you know, is there an experience of your past that defines or makes up who you've become? Interesting question. And how deeply historical and psychological to go with it. <laughs> as deep or you psychological know, <laughs> as you like. The couch is out. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think I went to college thinking I was going to be a professional horn player. And it was only midway through college that I decided, yeah, maybe I don't want to spend the rest of my life thinking about my lips. But so I went in without sort of a professional degree, you know, objective. I didn't go and say, I'm going to be a doctor or I want to do pre-med or pre-law or I want to be a computer engineer. So, you know, I did liberal arts. My feeling was, hey, college is for education and then there's probably graduate school somewhere. But really didn't have the foggiest idea. So I went from thinking I'd be a horn player to thinking I'd be broadcast journalist. And then when I graduated, cycled through this mad series of jobs, first at a talent agency, then as a paralegal, thinking about law school, then as a magazine editor at the American Management Association before saying, all right, I just need some education, I need some skills, so let me go to business school. But I think something that was pretty formative for me was that magical mystery tour of early careers where I did some writing and content production. I explored the extremes of the very creative world in a talent agency to a wildly cerebral but uncreative world of the law firm. And without realizing, you know, rather having these words, I was sort of craving a whole brain activity that was both strategic and analytical and cerebral and creative and innovative and imaginative, but wasn't finding it at you know any of those places yet. So it was that experience of sort of exploring and testing the various sort of extremes, so to speak, that helped me you know have the big forehead slapping aha moment first year of business school when I went to marketing class 101 and said, ah, this is it. This is where you have to roll around in the numbers and then pivot and generate a magical idea that moves hearts and minds. So I think it was that process of roaming around and dipping my toe into these different career areas that, that helped shape kind of where I went and where I spent 30 years of my life. Well, thank you for sharing that story. That's great. Well, I guess I should say thank you for coming back on the show. And it's been enlightening. And we'll put a link to the book in the show notes. Well, thanks so much, Alan. It was great to be back, and I appreciate the time. Marketing Today is brought to you by Atomic. Atomic focuses on unleashing the growth potential for clients we serve. Atomic is a strategic consultancy specializing in business, marketing, brand, and innovation. Our singular goal is to help you accelerate your efforts with the right mix of expertise, analysis, and creativity. 
Check us out at atomic.com. A-T-O-M-C-K.com. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with writing and editing by Kevin Greeley, social media support by Megan Woods, art and graphic design by Sarah Dell. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners and you can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes with links to anything we talk about on any episode. You can also search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today.